Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Doctors and researchers have known for decades that Americans have a weight problem. Many experts believe the turning point was in the mid-1980s. And once we started becoming heavier, we didn't stop. New data out in the last few weeks shows that nothing, not gym memberships or salad bars or low-calorie foods or any number of diets, has turned the tide. Now more than 70% of adult Americans are overweight, including nearly 40% who are obese. One man who is not the least bit surprised by this is Robert Lustig, who spent decades as a pediatric endocrinologist at the University of California at San Francisco, but who rose to fame a few years ago talking about our addiction to sugar. Of the 600,000 items in the American food supply, 80% are spiked with added sugar, specifically for the food industry's purposes, because they know when they add it, you buy more. In the last few years, Lustig has become worried that the problem goes way beyond sugar and beyond obesity. He argues that both American corporations and often consumers have conflated two words, and doing that has made us less healthy. Those two terms, pleasure and happiness. The difference between those two words might seem inconsequential, but Lustig says it isn't. Pleasure is the feeling of, this feels good, I want more. Happiness or contentment is the emotion of, this feels good, I don't want or need anymore. They're not the same. Happiness lasts. Pleasure is fleeting. Happiness is about sharing and giving. Pleasure is generally about taking or consuming. Happiness is not addictive. Pleasure is. Lustig has seen in nearly 40 years as a pediatrician the effect of this confusion on kids in particular. It has changed how and when they eat, how much they sleep, and the degree to which they're drawn to technology. And it's led Lustig to write a new book, The Hacking of the American Mind, in which he writes about his own growing conviction that companies, in trying to sell us some short-term pleasure, have convinced us they're in the happiness business. As I was looking at the phenomena that we associate with obesity, particularly this new phenomenon, which isn't so new, called sugar addiction, and, you know, we can go through, you know, exactly why we can say that that phenomenon is real, It was very obvious to me that this is just one manifestation of a multitude of addictions that kids today now manifest, Mm -hmm. including cell phone addiction, uh, internet addiction, alcohol addiction at earlier and earlier ages. And we actually have the data on that. Uh, Kids uh, alcohol addicted under age 18 Mm -hmm. going up. We have been sacrificing our happiness for the pursuit of pleasure because pleasure got cheap. You've kind of talked about three buckets of things, as far as I can tell. You've got food issues, like sort of addiction to food issues. Um, You've got things like uh, drugs and alcohol, um, substances. And then we've got technology, which is not a substance, is kind of an experience. What do those things have in common, and how are they different in terms of being addictive and how they sort of play in our brains? Right. So the similarity that ties them all together is that they all generate a dopamine response in the reward center of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. And we have the fMRI and the PET scanning data for each of those to document and demonstrate that indeed all of those are happening. So in human terms, here's what happens. 
You get a hit, you get a rush, receptors go down. Next time, you need a bigger hit to get the same rush hmm. because there are fewer receptors, and the receptors go down. And then a bigger hit and a bigger hit and a bigger hit until finally you get a huge hit to get nothing. That's called tolerance. And then when the neurons start to die, that's called addiction. Every single one of those substances and behaviors that generates a dopamine response has as its end point addiction. And we have an epidemic of all of them. And to you, does like the massive rise in um, obesity, which we've certainly seen over the past several decades, um, and the obviously massive problem that we're dealing with with Opioids, but heroin and but meth. I mean, a lot of things. Fentanyl. Yep. Right. Exactly. And I, I mean, you think about sort of uh, the tech situation as tech addiction. Do those things all like connect in your mind? Does like one thing lead to the other thing, or or play into the other thing, or make you more likely to have problems with something else? Absolutely. So it turns out those dopamine neurons, they're all the same. So it's not like you have a different set of dopamine neurons for food and a different set of dopamine neurons for tech or a different set of uh -huh. dopamine neurons for heroin. Okay, They're all the same dopamine neurons. And when you downregulate the receptors because you're addicted to one substance, you're addicted to all of them. So it's called addiction transfer. So if you take an animal, a rat, and you expose them to amphetamine for three weeks, and then expose them to cocaine. Turns out they're addicted to the cocaine, too. They've never seen it before, but they're addicted to that, too. Mm -hmm. Called addiction transfer. So when people stop smoking, they start drinking. When people stop drinking, they start eating. When they stop eating, they do something else yet again, and usually actually go back to smoking. So the fact, uh, you know, this concept of addiction transfer is well described in the uh, addiction literature. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Robert Lustig, the author of The Hacking of the American Mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains. He's also an emeritus professor of pediatrics at the University of California at San Francisco. So uh, since the government seems unlikely, at least anytime soon, to heavily regulate companies that, um, you know, as you argue, are trying to conflate happiness and pleasure, uh, whether we're talking about tech or food or alcohol companies, how does an individual person navigate this world in which there's a ton of temptations and make sure uh, that what you're aiming for is happiness and not just momentary hits of pleasure? Number one, connect. And connect does not mean Facebook. <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds a lot like technology. No, it's not. It's the opposite of technology. It's real connection. So I want, Facebook is connectivity without connection. Sherry Turkle, media watcher at MIT, right mm -hmm. there in Boston. Yep. You, you're familiar with her. Sure. I'm, she's been she, on your show. She has indeed. She coined the term alone together. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are today. We are alone together. We are not a community. We are individuals, okay, with this funky network that basically makes us miserable. That like button on that Facebook post, that is dopamine. It's also depleting serotonin. Now, if you ask Mark Zuckerberg, he'll tell you, well, yes, depressed people use Facebook because they are looking for social validation and this is a potential way of getting it. And that is true. However, if you 
look at the time lag analysis data, which we have, on anybody who uses Facebook, they are more depressed two weeks later than they were going in, no matter where they started. And we have those data. Um, you know, I, and I have them in the book. So Facebook is not connection. It is connectivity, not connection. Human beings are connection. Number two, contribute. And that does not mean to your IRA. Contribute means outside of yourself and not for individual monetary gain or credit. So Boy Scout badges do not count as contribution. So we're talking about volunteerism, altruism, philanthropy. You can pay somebody else to do it for you. Everybody wants to know, can you get contribution and uh, serotonin from work? And the answer is yes, with two provisos, that you can see how your work benefits others and your boss can see it too. If both of those are satisfied, you can actually derive contribution and serotonin from your work. But if not, then you're going to have to engage in something else. Number three, cope. And cope is three specific things, sleep, mindfulness, and exercise. Now, sleep. 35% of American adults get less than seven hours of sleep, and 23% are clinical insomniacs. One of the reasons is the blue light from the video, from your cell phone, mm -hmm. from your iPad, mm -hmm. from the TV. Mm -hmm. um, that is actually keeping your midbrain up. And, of course, kids are, you know, staying up till 2 in the morning texting and chatting uh, online. Okay. Then they have to get up at 6 in the morning for school, and they're all passing out. And, you know, it's one of the reasons for ADD. So the concept of sleep it has to, you know, um, as Arianna Huffington said, you know, we have to sleep our way to the top. Right. <laughs> um, in, indeed. Uh, mindfulness. Perhaps the most pernicious, horrible word in the English language of the 21st century is multitasking. If you can't multitask, you can't get a job nowadays. Well, it turns out only 2.5% of the population can actually multitask. The rest of us are serially unitasking. And every time you switch tasks, you get a cortisol bump, which only activates that dopamine even more so and actually stresses you out, lowers your serotonin, and makes you miserable. So mindfulness. So the concept of basically actively doing nothing, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And number three is exercise. And it turns out that exercise is better than SSRIs at alleviating depression. And then finally, number four, the big one, cook. So it turns out there are three nutrients that matter in terms of happiness and serotonin. They are tryptophan. Tryptophan is the precursor to serotonin, and you get it in eggs, fish, and poultry. Not exactly high in the processed food echelon. Number two, omega-3 fatty acids because they are anti-inflammatory. And if you look at the brains of omega-3 deficient rats or mice, they have this inflammatory haze around the synaptic boutons where the serotonin is released, preventing its release, and which goes away when you give the omega-3s back. Um, so you get better serotonin neurotransmission when you consume omega-3s, and you get that in wild fish and flax. Again, not exactly high on processed food. Mm -hmm. And number three, you want less fructose, less sugar. 
Sugar ups your dopamine, downs your serotonin. And so what you want is a high tryptophan, high omega-3, low sugar diet. That's called real food. Hmm. Finally, I just wonder if you can situate the U.S. for me. Um, I know that, you know, I think yearly there's a study of what countries are our happiest. We're never among them usually. I think no, Finland <laughs> is often high. Denmark is very high. Switzerland, Denmark, right. now, uh, Norway. They have yes. sugar and they have, yes, they, fa- they have Facebook, I think. And um, they have alcohol. And they have, and they have alcohol all and all that stuff. Right. And they right. search on Google and all that. So what do happier countries know that somehow we don't really know or are not kind of attuned to? Um, I'll tell you what they know that we don't. They know that it's not about health care. It's about health. Hmm. That's what they know. We think... A pill can fix it. Turns out there is no medicalized prevention of any of the chronic diseases that we are currently facing. There's treatment, and the farm companies are very happy to treat you for 20, 30 years and make billions and billions of dollars. In fact, they've all abandoned acute care medications for chronic care medications because we're all on them. Okay, 50% of people over the age of 40 now take a chronic disease prescription medication. That's not true in other countries. Is there a way, do you think, to incentivize companies to help us be healthier here? Um, I mean, because it seems like mostly companies are doing what's totally logical. They're acting within their own best interest. They're selling us as much of what they have to offer as possible. But maybe there's some sort of a different path uh, that would be more in our best interest uh, than in theirs. Absolutely. The problem is that we would have to change the business model. So currently, companies are rewarded for doing the wrong thing. You have to basically incentivize them to do the right thing. Now, let's take an example. Let's take food. That's an easy one. Mm -hmm. We have this thing called the farm bill. And the farm bill supports the production of commodity crops. And commodities are storable food, fiberless food, food that you can put through a mill, take away the fiber, and put in five-pound bags. So corn, wheat, soy, sugar. Turns out all of those are bad for us. They make money by using commodity crops that are subsidized in order to make processed food, which is killing us. The food industry grosses $657 billion a year. We spend $3.2 trillion a year on health care, of which 75% is chronic disease, of which 75% would be preventable if we could turn back the clock to rates of 1970 before processed food entered our world. In other words, we are spending $1.8 trillion a year cleaning up the food industry's mess. We spend triple what they make cleaning up their mess. That is unsustainable. Now, what if instead we actually got rid of subsidies and let the market dictate what different foods should cost? All of a sudden, it wouldn't be a problem for companies to be able to sell fruits and vegetables because they wouldn't be um, uh, bet against 
because you wouldn't have any commodity crops that you'd have to try to undercut. So the Giannini Foundation at UC Berkeley did this modeling analysis of what would food look like and prices look like if we got rid of all food subsidies. And the answer is, wouldn't change. Only two items would actually go up. Corn and sugar. Exactly what we want to go up. Robert Lustig is an emeritus professor of pediatrics at the University of California at San Francisco. He's also the author of The Hacking of the American Mind, the science behind the corporate takeover of our bodies and brains. Robert Lustig, thank you so much. This is great. This has been a true pleasure, Carol. And if you'd like another perspective on how big corporations have changed our diet, we've got an interview with Michael Pollan. I talked with him a few years back. It was a fascinating conversation about the intersection of processed foods, fiber, and gut bacteria. That's on our website, innovationhub.org.